Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my new friend, Leanne Payne-Tressler. Welcome to the podcast, Leanne. Thank you for having me, Richard. Leanne is also here with her cousin, Reed Blackburn. Welcome to the podcast, Reed. Thank you. Reed is the one that connected us. Reed is a seminary teacher at Cotwood High School here in Salt Lake, where I was a seminary teacher for one of our sons. Um, Just by introduction, um, Leanne is, um, we're going to talk about suicide in this podcast, very tender but important topic. And Leanne has had um, her husband die by suicide about three and a half years ago. And then her oldest son, Caden, died by suicide in April of 2019, this year. So Leanne is on a really brutal road that none of us really want to be on, but she's brave enough to talk about this on social media. I encourage you to find her Facebook page at Leanne Payne Tressler and look at some of the things that she's been writing about. And as we start this podcast, I just pray and Leanne and and read that a spirit of understanding and communication will be here as we talk about this subject. Leanne knows this road really well with two loved ones leaving by suicide, and she has great insights to help more stay. So if you've lost a loved one by suicide, or if you're thinking of suicide, or you're wanting to minister to somebody that may be suicidal, this is a podcast that we pray will give you nuggets of information and insights and added skills and tools to be able to navigate and minister to those on this difficult road. Is that an okay introduction, Leanne? That's perfect. You make me sound wonderful. (laughs) You are wonderful. And I may have mentioned this, that Reed offered a wonderful prayer before we started. Will you introduce your family, all the family members? You've got two that are on the other side and a bunch here, but just introduce your family to us. Okay. So um, Spencer and I got married in 2000. Um, we then had seven children. Wow. Yes. Wow. (laughs) But we both came from big families and we enjoyed it and loved it. And so we went to town on having kids. Um, Caden was my oldest. And then I had a daughter, Brooklyn, Lydia, and then a son, Nathan, and then boom, boom, boom. Three little, three little stooges after that. We have Lucy, Allison, and Evelyn. And actually Evelyn was four months old. When Spencer died and she had just been given a blessing in church um, two weeks before Spence died, about 10 days. Wow. Where did you meet Spencer? I met him while I was going to BYU. He was attending UVU and um, he was his, his friend that he was on a basketball team with came to pick up his girlfriend, who was my roommate at BYU. And so we kind of ran into each other and I was watching the 49ers as Monday night football. (laughs) And he sat down the couch next to me. He's like, Hey, you want to go out? I've never seen a girl watching Monday night football. I said, sure. So we, that's how it started. That's great. mm -hmm. How many years, how long from that first date until you were married? Um, it was approximately nine months. That's great. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're still into sports because I looked at your Facebook feed today and I saw that you were at the BYU game and you still have BYU blood in you. I do. That was instilled in me and my dad and it's never left, but I kind of love sports in general because it's such, uh, it's 
so indicative of life and the struggle and the battle. And I write about this a lot in my Facebook posts. And um, I talk about battles and swords and dragons and, and fighting because that's really what it is sometimes is you feel like life is a battlefield. And anyway, I love the battle of sports. I love the metaphor. So how, how many years were you married before um, Spencer died? We were married 15 years. Um, he, our anniversary was in September, our 15th anniversary, and then he died in October. Uh, October of 2015. Right. So mm-hmm. this is roughly about four years ago from when we're recording this podcast. We're coming right up on four years, yes. What vocabulary do you use to refer to your husband dying by suicide? What what vocabulary do you use? I when I speak to it, when I speak about it with others, I usually just say that he killed himself. Um it took me a long time to be able to say that. With Caden, since this is my second time, I've had no problem talking about it openly. But it was very hard after Spencer died to, I had such young children who, like I said, I had a four month old, a two year old, a three year old, a five year old, a seven year old. I mean, they can barely wrap their heads around death, let alone someone killing themselves or committing suicide. So it wasn't verbalized to my children for quite a while. And to be honest, I had to work through a lot to be able to really verbalize that to myself. Um, it's pretty devastating obviously for obvious reasons, but also on a personal level, um, you have to work through demons that tell you that it's your fault or that you weren't enough or, um, that you could have changed it or so I, I did live in a state for a while where I really had a hard time accepting that that was what happened. It's really honest about working through the demons that I'm not enough. Just to say that out loud, I think, takes a lot of courage, Leanne. Um, Read in his prayer, talked about your Christ-like attributes and your gift and your strength, and I think our listeners will hear that in this podcast. Um, Two questions come to mind. What have you learned about um, your husband, Spencer, that's now gone about his suicide? I if I'm reading his obituary, it seems like you just have this incredible family. Um, seven kids, a storybook marriage, and like a lot of families from the outside, everything looks great. And it sounds like Spencer's obviously got stuff going on that you probably were not aware of at the time, and maybe never completely aware of everything that he was working through. What have you learned about what was going on with Spencer? Um, and in asking that question, it's sort of to help other people that might be in the space know how to walk out of it right. without dying by suicide. Um, there were some things that I still will never know. He endured some traumas that um, he was never comfortable about speaking, like speaking to me about. Um, but for the most part, I did know that he struggled immensely. And this is something that know. I did know. Good. This is something that um, I think a lot of people, when my husband died and there was talk of suicide and being rumored around the community, people were shocked. And I'm sure even like Reed can attest that that was shocking. It w- it's not just, oh, I would never think that about him. It was, that's the last person I would think that about. Um, his physical stature was huge. He was very charismatic. He had been in the young men's for 
10 years and those boys just loved and adored him. Um, so for a lot of people and maybe people who live with those that struggle with these demons can relate to the fact that to everyone else, it does look storybook from the outside, but on the inside, um, you feel really isolated because you love them and you don't want to out them. Right. Um, and so I did a lot of covering for when he had difficult days or when he, there was a huge fight or something like I just, I have a theory. (laughs) Um, I have a theory that our childhood is so important and the things we received or didn't receive in our childhood. And I do think that that's what equips us with the tools to handle what happens in life. And I don't think there was anything wrong with Spencer. I think that he simply hadn't developed the tools to really handle the the pain that we all kind of deal with in life, but he had some particularly painful things, but he just had never, he had just never got the tools to deal with it. So it would, it would result in, in times when he just really emotionally struggled. And I knew that, and I felt pretty helpless to help him, um, because he really didn't want to help himself. We, he did go to therapists. We did try to work on, um, issues that we knew were going on, but at the end of the day, if I'm being honest, I really think that, um, what brought Spencer to that choice that night was that he was done living inside of a head, a mind that he had to stay in. Um, and that mind was telling him over and over horrible things about himself, lying to him, telling him that he was ne- he'll never be good enough, that he's that he's doing more damage to his family by being alive than being dead. And, you know, over time that wears on people and I can empathize. I've never had that struggle, but I can empathize with how that must feel. And I, I, I have coined it like it's the ultimate breakup with self. That if you're in a toxic relationship with someone, you can leave, you can get a divorce. You can, you can break up with someone. You can leave a toxic friend behind Um, You can even cut off toxic family members, but you can't divorce yourself. And it's a, you can have a toxic relationship with yourself. And um, I think in the end, he really needed to step away from that sick mind that was telling him all those difficult things because he had battled it for a very long time. And in fact, I think that some of these people that deal with this struggle are some of the most valiant warriors there are because I feel like my life is hard, but I wake up every morning and my mind tells me positive, good things. And I don't know what it's like to be told that I'm worthless and that I'm not enough and I never will be. I I don't know what that struggle is. Um, so my, I tip my hat a little bit to spend sometimes when it's quiet and, um, I talk to him of like, you made it till the last baby came. You fought the, you fought the fight until 39. And to me, 
um, with some of the struggles he had for as long as he had. He might have even extended his stay on earth with his fight. Maybe he was never even intended to live to be an old man, but he made it to 39. I don't know the answers. I just know that I've learned a different way to look at it, that um, the battle is real for people who struggle with severe depression. And um, I think sometimes people succumb in the end, at least in Spencer's case, that he got tired of fighting and he got tired of having that toxic relationship with himself. It's really powerful. I'm struck with, uh, you know, in a relationship, you can get out of a relationship, but if it's your own self and you're in a toxic relationship with your own self, your mind is saying all those things to you. That gives me more understanding of why your husband chose what your husband did. Um, what would you say... Um, to me or to any of our listeners that are in the same space that Spencer was the last year of his life? That's kind of a tough one. Um, How I wish that would have gone differently was that I wish he could have, I wish he could have just spoken it. I wish he could have said, I have... I have this headspace going on that I'm worried about. It's telling me really bad things and I really need to get help for it. And as much as that would have just rocked him to be that honest and vulnerable, um, it's what he really, it's what he really needed to do. It's, it's what could have saved him. Um, I think that, and he would tell me this, I'd say, why don't, why don't you talk about it more? Whatever it is, like, just, just say it. Like there's no harm in that. To you, to a therapist, to, to, me, to you. To me. And I would say, and and he his response to that was, if I speak about it, it will give it more power. If I just pretend it's not there, I'll deprive it of its power. And I fought him on that so hard because I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like the more you keep quiet about it, um, that's what gives the thoughts and feelings power. Satan can have his way with you. If you're keeping it to yourself, he can tell you whatever he wants to tell you. Um, and there's no one out there who loves you to, to combat that and say, that's crazy. That that's not true. Um, when you keep it inside, you do give it more power. And so that's why in a lot of my posts, I talk about just say it. Um, that's where you deprive the feelings. Like it's, it's, it's starving the fire. If you can just keep saying it, that fuel to let it fester into a dark poisonous thing, you're depriving that fire of fuel. If you can just get it out there into the light and say it and speak it. And in fact, it takes away its power because you have people who love you who can write those incorrect thought patterns and just help be a more balanced approach to what's going on in your head. It can't just be you and Satan battling it out in there because the outcome will not be good. You have to you have to get it into the light. I really like that. It's very insightful. If, I think if all our listeners could reach to the their wherever they're listening right now, they'd put their arms around you and and Leanne and just say this is very helpful and very insightful. And thank you for just talking. I came across a quote from a Catholic priest um, that a friend sent me, and I put it actually on my Facebook page. It's kind of long. I don't know if I read the whole thing. Henry Norwin. 
Um, over the last few years, I've been increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weaknesses. Mostly we're afraid of our weaknesses, that we hide them at all costs, and thus make them unavailable to others, but also often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires, one life in which we want to present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, and to God as a person who is a control, and another life in which we feel insecure, doubt, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. The split between these two lives can cause us a lot of suffering. I have become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming the greatest chasm between these two lives. Is in, in It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to the degree that I was able to share my weaknesses with others. Often I became aware of the fact that in my sharing of my weaknesses with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weaknesses and sinfulness started to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I'm able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. Any thoughts from that on that? Um, that's interesting. A lot of the wording I've, I've written about this. Um, it does seem like something you'd almost write, Leanne. Um, I, I've concocted all kinds of theories to make sense of my journey. And one of my theories is that we all have a really bright, beautiful, glittery, sparkly core. That's like the essence uh, that God created and, and this body is housing it. And that's like the best version of ourselves. And I feel like that core is who we, who we know inside we truly are. And the more we live our life um, and make choices that take us away from who that core person is. And we're well aware, even at a subconscious level, that this is who I am. This is my potential. This is how I should be living to, to reach that potential. And I feel like when, how we're living kind of the two lives, with Spencer, especially, um, who he was at his core was a very strong, kind, compassionate, powerful, righteous man and father. And then his actions slowly over time just moved further and further away from that core. And as that happened, I do think that it's a good gauge of someone's happiness in life. Um, if you look at how far they are from their core. And I have found this in my own life as well. And I think this is a universal truth that the further you get from that core, the more unhappy that you will be. And for Spencer, that became so different and it, it killed him that, I mean, literally, but also emotionally, it killed him that he was so far away from the man that he knew he was born to be. And he couldn't figure out a way to close the gap and come back to that core. Um, but definitely I saw that, like I said, it was shocking to many people when he died because he looked this way on the outside. And that was true. He wasn't faking that. That right. was true. But there was also this other part that was also true. And I think some people sometimes get stuck, um, on my side of it when we've lost someone this way, that it feels like they have to be one or the other was, were they a good person? Because I feel like they're a good person, but then they did all these terrible things and they killed themselves. And like, are they a bad person for me? It's always been 
he was both. He had light and darkness like all of us. He had good and bad, like that's all of us. Um, but you know, I stood up at his funeral and I said all the best parts of him. You spoke at his funeral. I did. That takes a lot of courage. I spoke. Did you plan to do that or was that spontaneous? I planned to do it and I did not speak for the people coming. I spoke for my children. I needed them to see me stand up in front of people and they needed to hear me say wonderful things about their dad and about the legacy that he left and their worlds were reeling, just reeling. And I needed to see, I needed them to see their mother stand up and be strong and tell them I was speaking to them. What a wonderful father that they had. And I, your kids will only do as well as you do. And I needed to set the precedence. I felt so strongly that they need to see me literally stand up and speak about it in a positive way that we're, we were lucky to have him while we, while we had him. Um, and it was great. It was very therapeutic for me. I talked about his loves, his love of God, his love of his children, his love of his wife, his love of the gospel. Um, his love of people and of service. So I just highlighted like eight things that he super loved. And I told stories uh, that represented um, those topics, but. Um, I'm really glad you did that. I, I'm glad too. And it was something that my children still talk about. Remember when you talked at dad's funeral and you told that story and. And did they have a smile on their face where they reflect on that? They do. It's a positive. positive There's a lot of stigma that they didn't understand at that point that, um, I didn't want this to be something shameful that their dad's death, that they had to feel shame about that. And so that's why I felt like, see, mom's not ashamed. Like I'm going to stand up and I am going to be in front of all these people. It was such a great turnout. I was so touched by how many people that came. Um, and I, really felt like they needed to see me face that. And, um, I don't know. It was, it was a good experience. And I was telling you that for a reason. And I forgot why I was, why I was telling that story, but, um, I think it just helps us understand who you are and the journey you're on. And I love some of these things. You're probably really angry at Spencer sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure if we could bring him in the podcast, you'd have some like, some of that. Um, but I love the way you, you also love him and talk about him staying until all your children were born. And in some of these really positive comments, and I've never thought of the impact then on your children when they see you speak at his funeral and see the positive things. And I'm sure they're also difficult things. So I don't want to pretend it's all rosy. I'm going to ask, um, Reed to just Share your thoughts about Spencer. I know you played basketball with him. Did he beat you? Yeah, so we knew Spencer. He's your first cousin. Yeah, and as soon as he married the family, he's a big guy. He's probably 6'6". 6'7". 6'7". Yeah, get this right, Leanne. 6'7". He would correct you if he was here. (laughs) Good. He'll want every inch. That was pretty good, actually. Pretty close. And he was just bigger and stronger than everyone else. And, you know, when we would play him, it would be like, ah, oh, who's going to guard Spencer? <laughs> and we'd put two or three people trying to guard him and he would just post us up. And, uh, but it was always fun. Like he just, you know, big guy with a big heart and, uh, he did have as big a heart as anyone. 
know, it seems like a lot of times these people that do go through pain, um, they have a heart as big as anyone else. So uh, really miss Spencer and we just loved having him around and especially with sports, you know, he was just always brought a lot of competition and uh, it wasn't any fooling around when Spencer was there. <laughs> we had to try and win. It got super competitive when he was there. What do you think Spencer would say to his children right now? Uh, I don't know. I think I, because of the heart he had, I, I know that he would say that those children are loved and I, I'm guessing, you know, as Leanne has spoken a little bit about the demons he was going through and his own thoughts, um, he probably didn't, I don't know, process it exactly what would happen after he passed away, how that would affect the children. Um, but I think he would want those children to know that they're loved and that they're worth it because, I mean, he made everyone feel that way. He was, uh, you know, he was on in the young men's for, for a period of time. And when we went to the funeral, you know, a lot of the young men were there that he had served and uh, they just thought the world of him. What have you learned about Leanne through this whole experience, um, seeing her speak at the funeral and seeing her walk this road for the last four years? Yeah. So um, seeing her speak at the funeral was impressive. Um, I haven't had a lot to do with Leanne. I haven't exactly known quite what to do. And I think, you know, a lot of times we're not exactly sure what to do, but you know, my wife and I, we've been through our own struggles and I think just reaching out, even if you reach out in ways that maybe aren't the, if just reaching out means a lot. And so I know that Leanne has received a lot of help from a sister of mine, uh, from my mom. And, you know, they're just true examples of reaching out and helping where they can. And that's my family alone. You know, Leanna could probably speak to this a little bit more, and I know she's written about it, but the service that community gives, the service that church gives, the service that her family puts in, I know her family's putting in countless hours of helping. I mean, when he died, there was a four-month-old and a 13-year-old was the oldest, so there were seven children there, and um, a lot of the community and family uh, jumped in and helped. Thanks, Reed. Thanks for being a seminary teacher. Um <laughs> I just have a soft spot for seminary teachers because I don't think you make uh, like a lot of money, <laughs> um, but you impact a lot of lives for good. And I just know you're there on the front lines with our high school age or junior high, if they're still seminary teachers, the junior high level. Thank you. Um, Appreciate that. Making a difference. So thanks for what you do to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and light and hope to others. And thanks for connecting so we can make this podcast possible. Um. Do you think, um, Spencer, if you could talk to Spencer now, what would you say? Well, let me ask, think about that question for a second. But one of the things you said earlier, Spence, one of the demons in Spencer's head was he thought his family would be better off without him. Right. Talk about why that is not, why that is a myth or not true in case other people are thinking the same thing. Well, I think it's no secret that if, if, you love someone who has emotional issues, your life is going to be a little bit harder. Um, and I was okay with that. I I loved him and I was okay with the fact that, um, that life was a little bit harder being married to someone who had these emotional issues. But when you stack it against 
him just being gone. I mean, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother level. And I wrote about it in a post just recently that I don't think that people understand. And I've, I've gotten a lot of messages from strangers as well, who also say the same thing that, um, that my posts have helped them because they've seen some very dramatic photos that I've posted of my children's pain or my pain and that, and they've sent messages that, you know, I, I didn't really think that they would miss me. I didn't really think that my family would be hurt by this. And to me, that's, that's just mind blowing that people can get to a place where their brain is telling them that, and they're believing that, um, we are not better off my family, my kids, we will forever be, we'll be fine, but we'll forever be hurting forever. And it's compounded with Caden's loss. And I much rather would have lived a life with someone that was struggling. Um, I would have done that for a hundred years, um, rather than do this to have their absence and a void that can't ever, ever, ever be filled. Um, I certainly, I certainly hope people would understand. And, 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 you know, if they're feeling like nobody cares, ask people, go to your family and say, what would life be like without me? What would you miss about me? People need to know. We don't say it enough to each other at all. I feel like if you feel something about someone, say it. You never know if someone needs a, they might not believe that they're loved. They might not believe that people would miss them. Um, so I wrote this in Spencer's obituary at the bottom. I wrote, um, if you feel it, say it. Like, why hold back? Why be tentative of, like, like even here in this room? Why, if I'm feeling like I am super grateful and super, like, I just admire you and I'm feeling, like, a connection with you, why do we all, why are we all tentative to share those really kind of um, tender feelings because the world's become kind of a hard place. But I think that if we push ourselves to say more often, you know, I love you. And it's not just like your kids in passing, of course, do that. But to the girl Maverick, who's checking you out, like in, and you're buying your drink, say, I love that necklace you're wearing. And I just, I think you're great. Like, why not? We are all here doing the same journey. And we are all struggling to find our path and we're all doing the same thing. We're all in it together. And I wish people who are struggling so much understood that, that they're an integral part of what's happening here on earth. And when they're gone, the world misses that that's never coming back. That, that same person will never be back. My Caden and my Spence, like they had stuff to offer that no one else can offer. There will be people similar to us in personalities and maybe even people look similar to us, but God doesn't repeat. And they've now just deprived the rest of us from, from their individual, their individual and uniqueness. Like it's just never coming back. And you might think that people won't miss that, but the world feels that there is an impact that ripples. Share with our listeners about Caden. Introduce Caden to our listeners. Caden <laughs> was one of my most favorite humans. He, um, 
He would have been 17 in July. He was smart as a whip. He had a whiteboard in his room that was huge, and he would just write math formulas on it. A whiteboard in his room. How unusual. And it was huge. And he bought, he said, I'm going to buy this whiteboard. And I was like, why are you spending your money on that? And he said, because I have formulas in my head that I need to get out. And um, he was a whiz at um, a Rubik's Cube. He could do it in 32 seconds. Wow. Yes. He was was very proud of that. Um, He was a big kid, just like his dad. He, he was huge. Um, and he was very tender. Um, he had a huge heart. He was very much like his dad. Um, he was handsome as heck. Um, I had a crush on him. He was just, he was just so cute. And sometimes I just think, wow, somehow I made a child that is just That's so great. good looking. <laughs> um, but he was, he was, a. it's funny because Spence, people would describe Spence as a family man. Spence's hobby was his family. Um, and Caden was the same way. He was, he was a family boy. Um, he was very kind to his little sisters. I had a very, like my littlest now, she's four and her and Caden were best friends. And she still asks for him daily. Her little four-year-old brain does not understand. And, um, Still daily, I get, when is Caden coming back? I mean, he'd give her a piggyback ride to to um, to bed every night, and he'd sing to her. Like, he just adored What her. songs? Do you remember what songs he sang? He liked to sing You Are My Sunshine and Give Said the Little Stream. Those are cool. Um, and she liked Moana, so he would, he would sing the Moana song for her as well. But um, he was just an all-around wonderful, wonderful person. When Spence died, I saw immediately this in him and it was worrisome to me. He stood by me at the viewing, um, as which you went to the viewing, right? Reed? Yeah. As I'm thinking, as you're explaining this, I just, you know, at the funeral, one of the things that stood about Caden and I'm interested to see what you share here, but he did not leave his mom's side and it was like, Spencer's gone, but I got you. I'm sure he's got some demons there. But that's what he portrayed there. Like, I'm the big guy now. I'm going to take care of my mom. Just like his dad, huge heart. And just didn't leave his mom's side that whole time. That was exactly what I was going to say. I said, go, go. You don't have to do this. It's actually pretty morbid that you're standing next to a casket um, with your dead loved one. And you're shaking people's hand. And I'm in high heels. And I'm like, thanks for coming. And I'm standing next to my husband that died five days ago. It's it's very taxing on the families. And I actually, this is kind of another topic, but I, I kicked that with Caden's funeral. I did not, I did not do that. Um, it was hard on my children. It was hard to understand. And in a lot of ways it can be kind of traumatic, but anyway, he stood next to me. We probably, we probably said hello and loved and hugged on people for four hours and he would bring me a drink. He would, I mean, he just, just like Reed said, like he just zoned in on, I got you mom. And it worried me because, um, no 13 year old boy should fill the shoes of a husband and father. Um, and there are a lot of people who came through the line of the viewing who said those very words to my son, you're the man of the house now. 
and you need to take care of your mom and your family, your kid, your siblings. And I would politely correct them, not because I needed to teach them, but I needed Caden to hear me say it over and over. I, I appreciate you coming and Caden's 13. I will take care of me and the kids. Caden gets to be Caden. He gets to be 13. Great instincts. But I think that that's kind of an old school mentality of like, you better be the big man now. No 13 year old needs that. There's so many, that's so multifaceted that he was the oldest of seven kids already. That's kind of a big deal, a big responsibility. And his dad was, he was a mountain of a man and, um, he felt like he had to fill those shoes and that's impossible. Um, so that is something that plagued Caden until he died was this feeling of, I got to fix my dad's death for my family. I got to make it better. I got, I got to, I got to make it so they don't hurt about that anymore by being the perfect son. Um, so that's another thing that is something I'm sure Spencer did not foresee that overnight my 13 year old boy turned into an old man. Overnight, my 13-year-old boy turned into an old man. In some of the suicide training I've had is to, when someone tells me they're suicidal, is to ask them if they have a plan. And not saying you did anything wrong here, but just for our listeners, um, ask them what happens afterwards. So what happens next? And where does this go? And sort of try to walk them through, you know, who's going to who's gonna find out first and how are they going to feel and what's the impact going to be? And I... I don't know if Spencer ever thought of the impact on Caden. I'm sure at the point that he took his life, I do think that um, there were several times in his journey where he still had enough wherewithal to maybe make some different choices about getting help. But I do believe you get to a point of sickness where you're living in an alter reality. You're, you're believing things that just are absolutely untrue and I do believe that when he did take his life, he probably wasn't thinking about any of us, not because he was selfish, but because the sickness gets so great that all you think about is the pain stopping. And for a while that bothered me because I, I'm sure a lot of suicide survivors think, why didn't they think of me? Why didn't they, I have an 11 year old daughter who will cry that still. How come he didn't think how this would affect me and his sister? And, um, and I just hold her and tell her, honey, I don't, I don't think he was thinking anything at that point other than he wanted the pain to stop. Um, we tend to take it really personally. I took it very personally with sure. my husband as a wife. That is quite a hit to your, um, self-esteem even. Um, but luckily I learned enough lessons that, I haven't taken Caden's death personally at all. Um, and I wish people, I've seen people who carry that for, for 20 years that they're taking it personally, that they personally did something to cause it or to not stop it. Or, um, I learned the hard way from being in a very dark place that, um, it, in the end, it really had nothing to do with me. There are people, so for the people that have survived this and still carry guilt, there are people that go through horrendous lives, horrendous marriages, horrendous childhoods, and they still don't kill themselves. 
Um, so there's nothing you did to push them there. There was something already sick inside of them that that was something, whether it's severe depression or a chemical imbalance or trauma that's never been addressed. Um, that was something going on with them. So there have been people who have endured much more than my husband or my son endured, and they still are able to live a long, healthy life. So it's not, it's not, it's not about what we do or we don't do. We just need to love and try to be an accepting listening ear, but it's a little bit, um, arrogant to think I could have saved him. I'm not, I'm not God. I am not Christ. I cannot save another human being all by myself. That's why there is a Christ. I had a wise bishop tell me when I was working through this process, um, I just, I just wish I could have saved him. I wish I could have saved him. And he said, he already had a savior. He has a savior. Stop trying to be a savior. His Christ job is to save. Yours was just to love and support. So stop making it about you. And that helped me kind of pull out of the, the dark abyss that I was in for quite a while after he died. It's really helpful. Um, I'm struck with just your personal journey to have two people that you love die by suicide and your own personal journey to go through that very dark road and get to where you are now, where it seems like you've just turned that over the Savior, let the atonement heal you. You don't go down the dark road of self sort of reflecting all the things you wish you'd done differently or I've just said this isn't my fault. Well, I did do that the first time, but most people don't get a second try at learning how to handle suicide intimately in your own family. So, and that's one of the unique, yeah, I, unfortunately I know better now. Um, no one wants to know better on things like this, but you know, it's funny if you, someone had asked me 10 years ago, what's, what's your worst nightmare? I would say that my husband or one of my children died. And basically I live a life that I'm, is, I'm a walking worst nightmare. Um, I'm a walking worst nightmare. Wow. I am the physical representation, representation of my worst nightmares. And you know what? It won't kill you. It didn't kill me. And it feels like the pain should kill you. Um, I remember a couple nights after my husband died, we had not had the funeral yet and I had not gone back to my home yet. And we were just sleeping at my, my parents' house. And of course there's no sleep. People who know death, I'm sure you have found this too, Reed, when your daughter passed away that sleep, sleep becomes a beast that you just struggle with. And for several nights in a row, I wasn't sleeping. And one night I was walking around the house and I, all my little kids were sprawled on the floor and I was just pacing over them of what are we going to do now? Like how, like pleading with God, you got the wrong girl. Like who told you I could do this? They were wrong. Um, and I went to a big window they have on the, on one of their walls and it was a full moon and so much moonlight was coming in. And I was feeling the pain so intensely in that moment. And I had my hands and I was looking at my hands in the moonlight and I was thinking, why isn't my skin ripping? Why am I not bleeding? 
And it hit me. This is why Christ bled. Um, There had to be blood for the symbolism, but it made sense to me in a moment that what he was feeling was so big and so painful that it had to push outside of his body. It could not be contained by mortal skin. And I just remember marveling that I can't believe my skin is intact. I feel like fire and, and inside. And I can't believe from everyone else looking at me from the outside, I look like a normal person. Um, and I gained a very powerful testimony of the atonement that night that I know, I know why he bled. Um, but I really love that, you know, just the visual of your hand expecting with all the pain you're feeling, your body not even, shouldn't even be holding together. Right. And it's a marvel that to, on the outside, we look normal. And that is part of the struggle of those who are struggling with any pain, whether you're on my side of it or you're whether on Spencer and Caden's side of it, is we all look normal from the outside. We can go to work and we can go to school and we can go to church and we can look normal. And inside we might already be dying. And that is why it's a two fast, it's like a two part problem. People need to step outside their lives more and be more sensitive and aware to what's going on with their neighbor. And also those who are struggling so bad, they have to speak up. They, they have to let people know where they're at. And I have had to keep myself accountable. I've gone through some very low times since this has happened and I keep myself accountable. There's a couple people that I force myself to call when I'm feeling that dark and I don't want to, I don't want to, but, um, I like that. I keep myself accountable. I've got a few people that I have to call when I get in a dark spot and they know if the phone's ringing at 1am, it's time they're, to pick they're it up. answering. Um, I have two, I have even more than two. Um, I have wonderful people in my life. The only reason I am as well off as I am today is because I have stood on the backs of, of giant people. So it makes a big difference when you have the support, whether you're on my side of it or you're on Spencer and Cadence. The support is huge. And also, we just need to remember that just because people look okay doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't mean anything. I think it's a great sign of strength that you have people you're accountable to and you reach out. And I think we have to, you've talked before we went live about a mask. We hide behind these masks of perfectionism, perhaps, or. And it's hard culturally sometimes to take off that mask and say, I need help, or I don't feel right, or I'm a little broken. or, And I think culturally we need to do what you're suggesting, and I think it's a great sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. I love Elder Holland's talk, um, the broken vessel, and trying to de-shame. There's no shame. In fact, I'm looking at his talk and acknowledging, um, uh, and there's no shame in acknowledging that we have needs in this space, just like there's no shame in acknowledging when we need to go to a doctor for an appendicitis. Right. That's exactly right. On, on where I'm at in my journey now, I have lost all shame. I don't, I don't know if I had enough to begin with. I'm kind of, I have the opposite problem. I probably, um, I have lost all shame. I love that. I think shame is Satan's greatest tool to just keep us from doing what we need to do. 
Right. And if you think back to the Garden of Eden, once Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they hear God coming and their first response is, God's coming. Good. Like we need to talk to him about what happened. And it wasn't until Satan said, you guys better hide. You guys better feel ashamed. And that was the first time it occurred to them to even feel that way. They were going to have a conversation with their heavenly father. We messed up. Like, what are we supposed to do now? And Satan is the one who brought shame to birth. He's the one who introduced it to Adam and Eve. It's not a part of how God works. And if you're feeling shame, then you are not feeling, that's not God's tool to get people to change. He doesn't use shame. And I, on this journey, I've lost all shame. My 14-year-old daughter probably wishes I had more shame when I uh, show up at school and dance in the car when I'm dropping her off, but... I think it's a sign of great spiritual maturity. I, I remember with the YSAs, my wife asked me, what, what do you think you're doing the most? And I said, I think I'm taking shame. I've always felt, and not all shame is associated with messing up, but if, if a YSA messes up, there's a sin involved there. And I thought guilt was always a positive thing because it, it's forward-looking and it's full of hope. Shame is just Satan's tool to make you stay in the same spot and not feel good about who you are, not feel worthy of God's love or and I just think shame, I love what you talked about in the Garden of Eden. I've never thought of that, Leanne, that that is the first thing he introduced to bring down Adam and Eve was shame. And I do agree that's one of Satan's greatest tools. And I think the spiritual mature I would call it spiritual maturity where you are, where you feel no shame. You kind of say that, you know, with a smile on your face, like, I think it's really, and that's why I love Elder Aholland's talk when he talks about his own mental illness in the broken vessel. And to me, that's Elder Holland being authentic where who he is. And so that's one of the reasons I love Elder Holland, because I feel like I can relate to him because he was so real in that talk. Um, And so I think as we we just need each other in our weaknesses, we don't need each other in these perfect masks that we might. And we need to develop the skills that you're helping our listeners understand to be able to be vulnerable, to reach out and be honest with who we are. Reed, I don't know if you have any thoughts at this point in the podcast. No. Um, I, you know, before we came on, we talked about a few things. And um, so I just took a couple notes. Uh, Leanne, you know, as she mentioned earlier, a lot of who we become is how we were raised. And I know her mom and I know her dad. And I know not everything's always been smooth. Like it's not always smooth with any of us and our parents. But I just love the idea that you know, her family has been there. And earlier you asked a question about her relationship with Heavenly Father. And I just yeah. love the way that she explained that. So I'd like, you know, maybe to hear about that again. She also talked about in a post that pain doesn't stop. It just transfers. So um, yeah. would love to hear a little bit of that. And then she used an explanation about suicide to kids. Sometimes this is a hard topic and she used poison. And so I know that that might've been on your list of questions, but those are, a couple of the things that she had mentioned earlier before we came on that really stood out to me. So we'll start with Heavenly Father. And if you forgot any of them, I think there are four there. We can ask Reed to. Okay. But that's a, I would assume, I've learned that anger is a pretty normal human emotion. I assume as a lead into this question, you felt some anger towards God. Oh, for sure. And so I think that's really helpful for our listeners to just share your relationship with Heavenly Father and any anger you work through. 
I think the reason I felt permission, so to speak, to be angry with God is because I felt a personal enough connection with him. And I don't think he's a wrathful, vengeful God that I felt like God can take it. He's not, it's not going to make him not love me. It's not going to make him unhappy with me. Um, I can, I can be angry with him. And there are many nights, um, that I would find myself parked on some high rise over the city after my kids would go to bed and I would yell at God. I'd yell at Spencer out loud. Uh, out loud. It helped me to do it out loud. And I would. You'd yell at Spencer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like we're not going to get over the emotions again if we don't say them. And I don't want to pretend I'm not mad at God because that's like, you're not supposed to be mad at God. I don't want to pretend that I'm not mad at Spencer. He was a good person who tried hard, but I, I can still be mad that this is the way my life has worked out for my children and me. Um, but I think people need to give themselves permission to be angry. If you're on Spencer's side of it, um, and there's some things in your past that have happened that you've struggled with, be angry about it. It's okay. Like God can take it. And so I feel like what Reed was talking about was when I described my, my relationship with my heavenly father is intimate enough that I see him very much like my physical father who is very loving, very kind, very supportive. Um, he's been a wonderful father, but I've also butted heads with them because we're very similar. And, um, I think that that's, a, that's okay to have that in a relationship. And I guess I just gave myself permission to, to be mad at God. I, 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 I told you guys I've rumbled with God on many occasions. Kind of like that rumbled. Which means I'm just kind of beating it out in the arena with him of like, you know, it's not fair. It's not okay. And then I kind of get to a place of more acceptance and, um, you just kind of got to kick it around with them until you get to a place where it's kind of like you agree to not disagree, right? Or you, yeah, agree, agree to disagree. Has your anger, anger with God decreased over time? Uh-huh. Yes. And in fact, it's been interesting to me that um, I have felt very little anger towards God or Caden since Caden died. Um I'm going to share something really personal and I only do it. This is my, this is my, this is a important moment on my personal salvation road. But if it helps someone, I found my son, Caden and he hung himself in our shed. And I had this moment for some people, those moments will time will stop for me. For some reason, time sped up really fast. And I was understanding many things in a moment. It's, it's actually very hard to describe, but one of the things I understood, again, this is, I hesitate to say this because not everyone will understand, but, um, in some ways learning from Caden's death helped fix a lot of what I had not put to rest with Spencer's death. Because as I tried to take in the image of my little boy hanging from the rafters of the shed, 
And that moment, it came full circle for me. And I saw my husband in him as well, that inside Spencer was also a hurting 16-year-old boy. And um, I share that for two reasons. Number one, that's why I don't have the anger. They did the best they could. I am not them. I cannot judge them. I cannot say that they should have tried harder or less. I have no idea. Um, So I don't place any judgment on Spencer anymore. I did judge him. I did feel like he left us in a bind and bailed on me. I for sure went through those emotions. But it having that moment, seeing Kate in that way, it's like God was teaching me this is really who Spencer was inside and you're not going to be mad at Caden. So let's stop being mad at Spence. Um, And then also I share that because for those who are thinking about doing this, I have images in my mind that I will have seared in my brain until I am old and gray. It is nothing any family member should ever see. And I know from my experience in posting these things, people have sent me messages of them finding their loved one who has killed themselves. Um, the, your world is rocked never to be made right again. Um, we will be okay and we will overcome, but that he's my little boy. Like those are powerful, powerful images. And, you know, we stay away from movies that have really horrible scenes in them because we don't want those images in our brain. But sometimes you don't have a choice because you find your loved one and it's like you're living your own horror movie and those images will stay with you forever. So if you are thinking about that, please know someone has to find you. Someone has to never be the same. I'm just, that's a really sacred moment, Leanne. Uh, on behalf of all of our listeners and Reed and I here, we're honored you'd share that with us. I, my impression is the veil was incredibly thin in that moment and you're receiving, you know, revelation from Heavenly Father and and to help you understand that moment and to and to bring some peace and understanding in that. And I love that your description of time actually sped up. And it was like in some ways the veil was so thin that just all this knowledge that wasn't time sensitive just poured into you. Um, but I also love what you talked about. You know, someone needs to, someone will find you if you choose this road. And I love you being so direct and honest about, yes, I've never thought of that. Everybody that dies by suicide, somebody finds them. Right. Thank you for sharing that, being so honest. It's very helpful. You're welcome. And it makes me just want to hug your two, Spencer and Caden. And the empathy you shared with Spencer to understand more of how he felt at age 16 is just very insightful. It comes from a position of love. Right. It comes from a position of seeing the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps the pre-earth life, this life and the next life. And, and it just having a, I call it the 40,000 foot view of what you're seeing at that moment. And 
Um, anything more you want to say about that moment, such a tender moment, before we move on to your second question, Reed? I've got your fourth question, which is poison, but I forgot your second and third ones. Yeah. <clears throat> and the pain doesn't stop. It's just transferred. And maybe she's already talked about that. So I don't know if we need to talk more on that or if she wants to say anything else on that. But she put that in a post and, you know, uh, I just thought that was powerful. I did want to convey to when I write, it's um, I'm hoping to, it's funny because when I get messages from people after I send a post, they come in from both sides really heavily. Those who are struggling with the demons and those who love someone who's struggling with the demons or someone who has succumbed to the demons. Um, I, the reason that I really wanted to put that out there was I do think that when you are in the cloud of lies, maybe, and I, and like I said, I've shared very graphic pictures I had a photographer come to both of these boys' burials um, just for the reason that I have very young kids. And I was thinking that one day when they don't remember any of this, that they might want to process a funeral or someone being laid to rest. Um, so I did have some pretty dramatic photos that I've vaulted for a long time that even I struggle to look at. Um, but I wanted poignant pictures to maybe pierce through some of that fog of lies that some people are living in that no one will care and that people will be better off. Um, as I've watched my children try to live with this and understand this, um, and I've listened to all the strangers message me about how they now carry the torch of the pain left behind by their father, mother, sister, brother, child. Um, it's very evident to me that I know that these boys left because they were in so much pain, but it's like they, it's like they set it down and left. And it's like the family and those who love them have to now pick it up and add it to our own packs. Um, it just, it's just funny how their minds are telling them, I'll just help everyone out by just removing myself from the situation. Everyone will be better off. People will be happier. They won't have to deal with me as a, whatever people are doing in their lives, if they're a drug addict or if they're struggling so much with depression or they, whatever, whatever it is that they're feeling like I'm such a burden. Um, there's just, it is simply not true that the pain is going to leave with you. It's unequivocally false. And I just want people to understand, well, we're going to pick it up. Like we're all going to pick it up. My four month old, picks up stuff from her dad's death when she was four months. She then had to pack that on. My, my daughter has never known a father figure. She calls everyone father. Cause she doesn't even know what that means. She just thinks men means father. Um, so to watch little children pick that up is one of the most heartbreaking things I, of my journey of everything I've been through to listen to children cry in their beds at night crying for a dad that some of them don't remember and now crying for their brother. It's the worst part of the journey for me is watching the burden that my children have had to pick up. I'll pick it up. I'm an adult. I'm a big girl. I'll pick it up. But to ask little children to pick it up who are already struggling to carry their own. 
they, they do turn into, they turn into old people. Um, so that is something I tried to share in one of my posts is just, please remember that it is a lie that you are going to, um, that somehow your leaving is going to be beneficial to others. In your Facebook post, um, just about this is being recorded in September 16th. So if anybody wants to find this, this is about September 15th. You posted this. And once again, you can find Leanne at Leanne Payne Tressler, T-R-E-S-S-L-A-R. I love this. No single human being is replaceable. Who will take your place? There isn't another you. In all the history of the universe, there's never been an exact replica of you nor will there ever be. We are all handcrafted by the master of souls. Caden and Spencer were the only ones, capital O, ones, who could be them. No one else can fill the void where they once were. That's why we're all so precious, because we're all created painstakingly by the master. No cookie-cutter humans are mass production line of souls. One of a time, each of us, one of a one at a time, each of us one of a kind. No one can do you. Once again, you've got you capitalized better than you. When you die, you deprive the world of the only you there ever will be. When your light goes out, the whole world is a little bit darker. You are needed, you are wanted, you are valuable and worthy. I love the way you put worthy in there, Leanne. I think everybody is worthy of God's love. Absolutely. It's not conditional. Um even though you aren't perfect, don't deprive the world of your life. Keep it here. Stay, 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 stay. You know, you're a really gifted writer. Thank you. You're a gifted communicator. Um, that post really touched me. Um, poison, I think, was one of the things you mentioned, Reed. Yeah, that was the other one. I didn't have any others that... She had used that to explain it to her kids. This can be really hard to explain to young kids what suicide is. And she had a wonderful analogy that I really liked. So it is very difficult to explain death, let alone suicide, to even even middle-aged children. Um, but I certainly had my share of small ones. And by some miracle, the day that Kate and I, well, not a miracle. Uh, it was not a coincidence. It was a rare occasion when my children were at my parents' house because I was going to go Easter shopping for them. And I felt impressed to go back to my home after I dropped them off at my parents where Caden was supposed to be mowing the lawn. And I thought, I'll just take them with me. I don't feel good about leaving them home alone. And so when I, um, so I went home and, um, but how things worked out were that my, none of my children were home. Um, I would see that horrific image a million times before I'd want any of my children to. So it was a great blessing that no one was home except me. And um, so after, and maybe, maybe I'll go into this a little bit so that people who are under, I'll just briefly say this. Um, you find someone and then you have to call 911. And then 10 police come to your house. And then 
you're screaming in your front yard and your neighbors are coming out. This has happened to me twice now. And then they can't move the body until the medical examiner comes. Like, this is the real stuff that happens. And so Caden laid on the floor of my shed for three hours until the medical examiner could come. And all that time, I'm sitting in my living room screaming um, and when they finally take him, you watch your loved one leave in a body bag. And slowly all of the first responders leave and your neighbors go home and your life just turned on its axis and will never be the same. Um, so... I guess I just wanted to say a little bit of reality here. Lo- this is really helpful. This is what families go through when there is logistics afterwards that are extremely disturbing and painful and, and pretty awful. Um, but I was headed back to my parents' house. I wasn't going to stay there that night. And I was driving with my sister and we pulled up to my parents' house where all of my children were. And I sat in the driveway And I didn't want to get out because it was this home that I also had to gather all of my children and tell them that their dad had died. And that experience was probably worse than anything I had experienced, even Spencer's death, because I sat in front of these children who were happy and eager to know why we had gathered them all together. And to to know, I just, I couldn't even say it for a minute when I was trying to tell them that their dad died because I knew in my lips, I had information that would make them never be the same. And I just wanted to hold on to their innocence for just a few more moments. So I had that experience of telling my children that their dad died and the wailing that happens after that. So fast forward three and a half years and I am walking into the same house to have the same conversation with the same children. So as I gathered them this time, I just said a prayer of God. I don't even know how to explain this. I just don't even know what to say. And I said, so I'm just going to start talking and you're going to have to fill in the blanks because I don't even know how to describe this to, like, I have a four-year-old. And um, as I sat there and I started talking to them about what happened, the thought came to me. Um, that there was an explanation that they would understand. And I told them Caden had died. And they all started crying and said, how, how did he die? How would he die? He's 16. And I said, he got very, very sick. And they're like, am I sick? Are you sick? You know, and I, and I said, Well, let me explain Caden's sickness to you. Caden had lots of hurts from dad dying. I know you guys do. I know I do. But Caden chose to hide all of those hurts in like a tight box in his heart. And he chose not to talk about it and not to tell anyone and not let anyone know. He wanted to keep it a secret that he was hurting so much. And those feelings of hurt, if they don't come out of your mouth, or they don't come out of your hands in writing, or they don't come out in music, if they can't get out somehow, those feelings over time turn into poison. 
And that poison will make your heart so sick that you will die. And that the way people die of extreme heart sickness is suicide. And there was still more explanation as to um, what does that mean in terms of, you know, I'd explained killing yourself. And to them, that's just eye popping. Like, why would he kill himself? That just to him, he was the, he was the wrestling brother who was very protective of his siblings. And it just, it's the two lives thing. You know what we talked about earlier, they knew him one way and he really was inside feeling a very different way. Um, I love that. I love your personal revelation. You received and explaining that. And I love, you really have some visual imagery. Like he locked that up in a little box in his heart. Um, well, and I told them it would, they, we, I've gone to support and the, groups. And I love all the ways you've talked about how you can release that through music, through writing, through talking to others. Right. My kids know other kids whose dads have died. And so as they've met those other kids, um, they know that I lost my train of thought. That's okay. <laughs> what were we talking about? We were talking about just unlocking hearts and sharing the pain with others through writing or through talking or through music. Oh. It was cancer. Cancer. They know a lot of dads who have died from cancer. So I I used that to explain that it's basically you'll give your heart cancer. They understand dying from cancer, that there's a disease that overtakes your body that you can't fight back and it ends up taking your life. Um, So I told them that it basically becomes cancer of the heart, that those negative, sad, traumatic... um, depressed feelings, they'll just poison your heart into a disease that, that, that kill you. And how that looks in someone with a diseased heart is suicide. And that seemed to, I mean, it doesn't make it okay, but it seemed to help them understand. And I think that it's a simplistic way to say it, but obviously it's much more complex than that. But at the root of it, that's what's happening. At the root of it, all of these people are fatally heart sick talk about and i think our listeners kind of understand but some people wouldn't talk about this you know i've had um but i've had people on the podcast um that have wanted to talk about the suicide of a loved one just share with our listeners why you feel impressed to write about it and talk about it and i we're really glad you are by the way (laughs) um it may help other people that are on the same road understand you know why you're doing this and it may give them a more understanding of what perhaps they could do. I'm actually not comfortable doing this. Um, these feelings, these lessons, these experiences, they are sacred in my own personal journey back to God. Um, and when I post on Facebook, I'm, I'm kind of outing myself here, but when I post on Facebook, you'll know I had a couple sleepless nights because I feel compelled to share some of what I've learned. I don't, I'd rather not. I'd rather close the windows and doors of my life and just raise my kids and try to nurse our wounds and, and find a way to be some version of normal. But at the end of the day, again, I had that same wise bishop once tell me it had been about 10 months 
after Spencer died. I had not posted anything on Facebook since I announced his passing. And I made a very bold, long post 10 months later about how it had not, it had not, uh, defeated us and we were going to be okay. And, and that came at the prompting of that Bishop of, you know, God's, God's seen you through this and God's given you some resiliency here. And at some point you are duty bound to share some of what you've learned. I also had someone bring to my attention recently. I wish I were researched this more, but I believe it was a book by Neely Maxwell. Um, he was the cardiologist, right? The recent cardiologist is Elder Redland. Is he a cardiologist? Yes, but it wasn't Elder Redland. Um, and of course, President Nelson, but I can't remember. Oh, well, it I might thought. be Nelson. Yeah. Um, that he was telling me an excerpt from this book that he had just recently read about how he had done surgery on someone's heart and they had died. And do you know this book? Yeah, it's President Nelson. Do you know the story? Not as well as you're okay. about to tell it. <laughs> well, it's a very brief story, but he went home and his wife found him just lying on the floor, just devastated. I'm never doing heart surgery again. I am, I'm done. Like, I just can't, I can't risk taking another life if I can't succeed at, at repairing their heart. And his wife said to him, get up and go back to it because the reason that you are obligated to do that is we don't want someone else to have to learn what you now know by walking that path and don't make someone else learn what you now know, um, by taking someone else's life, by not having a surgery go right. And I think that that was so insightful that I felt like there's stuff I know that a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't know that this is, I feel like I live in another universe now in some ways. And, um, there's some pros to that and there's some cons, but one of the pros is I see the world much differently than I used to. And when I see people behaving badly now, my, I used to be like, what is their problem? That's so inappropriate. You know, if someone's yelling in the parking lot, because they're parking space, I have this instant reaction now of what happened to them? Who hurt them? What have they been through? Otherwise, why, they wouldn't be acting this way. And I've loved that it's given me a whole new perception of how to look at the world. And so for me, the sharing is I have some lessons that unfortunately have come at astronomical prices. Um, in some ways, I feel like I've paid for them in blood. And at this point, I feel like God would be disappointed if I wasn't trying to share it with someone so someone doesn't have to learn the same way I learned by doing it twice. I don't want anyone to have to learn any of this, um, not even once, but twice. It, um, I feel tugged at to share even though it's against my grain, I'm usually a pretty private person, but that's why I'm speaking about it. If, if anyone, if it saves, and I know this is cliche, but it's true. I have received messages of people who have told me that because of posts I've written, not that I am so powerful, but something touched them. And often it's probably my pictures, um, that they've 
decided to abandon a plan they have. And if I can save one mother, one wife, one sibling, I, there's just so much hurt surrounding the families that, that love the people who die this way. Um, if I could save one family, then maybe all that my family has gone through is not, it's not, it's not wasted. It's not wasted anyway because we've learned and grown from it. But if you can multiply that benefit to others, um, then I have to do that. As much as I don't want to, I feel that I have to. And I think it's great you're doing it. And I, I think we both recognize not everybody feels impressed to be able to do what you're doing or called to do. But I, Reed and I and all our listeners are just so grateful for what you're doing. It is so needed and you have so many insights. I use this quote a lot in the podcast. Our listeners will recognize it. It's also a Henry Norwin quote. It's the wounded healer. And that's who you are and Reed is um, and I am. We all have different ways we're wounded, but it allows us to heal. And it's the idea that a minister service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded about, wounded by the suffering about he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Mm-hmm. So, Leanne, you are like the wounded healer when it comes to suicide and losing close family members. Reed's lost a daughter to natural causes. But you both know this desert. It's a different desert. Um, but then be, you're the wounded healer. You're wounded. You've described this in really honest terms. But your woundedness allows you to lead other people out of this desert and keep other people from going into that desert that may die by suicide. And I think that's one of the great parts of your ministry now. You have a ministry as a mother, doing a great job with these kids. But in some ways, I think you talking about it is helping your kids. And the way you're developing personal revelation like this, like how to explain um, cadence um, death to your other six kids that night is just you working really closely with Heavenly Father, this rumble at times to get personal revelation. Um, the only, what are your hopes for your, for your future? Do you go down that road? I mean, what is your, fa- what are your hopes at this point when so many of your dreams have crashed and burned and are off the table and you're living in a whole new re- Unreal, unreal reality. Do you go down the road of hope and go, what, this is what I hope it looks like for my kids over the next five years, 10 years, 15 years? Or do you just try to live day by day? That's a great question. I think I loosely hope. I think I learned from the first chapters of my life that God's plan and our plan don't necessarily mm-hmm. line up. And I felt like when Spence died, what I had been building for 15 years, well, for really, I was 34 when he died. For 34 years, it's like a building that I had painstakingly built, just brick by brick by brick, was just leveled in a moment with just the words of, he's dead from an Orem police officer's mouth. It's just all gone in a moment. Um. So as I've tried to rebuild that slowly, I don't think I'm trying to construct it to look like anything in particular. Um, 
because I know it will change and evolve and it might again, like what happened with Caden, it got severely rocked again. And I've kind of given up on trying to dictate the way I want my life to go. Um, I still want to create a good, positive, happy life with my kids. Um, but God's at the helm. Like, who do I think I am to try to say it's got to be this way or it's got to be that way? It's got to be the way that God says. And I don't always like that. And like I said, I've, I've shook my fist at the heavens many a times. Um, but the hope I do have is not about what I want my life to look like. It's more about how I want my children to experience life. I used to care a lot about how you do in with your grades and sports and what's going to happen with college and what job are you going to get? And I have really decided that that's not as important to me. And before we go to bed at night, there's three things I say to my kids. And if they learn this and they believe it to their core, I will say that I succeeded as a mom. Um, Number one, they are fiercely loved. And my littles don't even know what fiercely means, so we describe it as like the difference between a lamb and a lion. Lions, like, they're fierce, and I love you like that. You are loved fiercely. Um, Number two, you are always, always enough, simply for the fact that there is no other you. So you are enough because you're you're you. No one's going to be a better than you than you, so you are already enough. Um, and lastly, you absolutely belong here. It's a struggle when a parent, especially, well, actually for both, some kids feel like they belong there. They belong with their dad. They belong with their brother. They feel like that is more enticing than staying here and feeling the pain of it. Um, so I have to work at convincing my children that they belong with me. They belong with their dad, but not yet. And that they belong here on earth, in this family, in this body. Um, And those are the three truths that if I can instill in my children, um, I feel like they will be able to be emotionally resilient later in life. And I have learned for me, emotional resilience has been more important than any other quality or attribute that I've had other than my faith in God. Um, so that's my hope for them is that they can get on the other side of this. And when people are like, Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And you're so inspiring. I feel like saying everything that happened to me happened as an adult. If you want to meet amazing people, you should meet my children. Um, this will be 10 times harder for them to overcome and process and get to a good place. But those are my hopes. I, I, I still believe the world is a good place. I still believe that the sun shines. I still believe that, um, God will work it out somehow, some way. I have to believe that I have to, the other reality is too devastating. So I hold on to the reality that makes me happy and God's got something going on. I don't understand it. But um, I will say that there's still goodness on the other side of all of this. There really is. I'm still extremely blessed. And I feel very fortunate, like Reed mentioned, that I have good family. I have wonderful people that surround me. 
my children do. I feel like I've had to hike higher on the mountain than most people, but it's afforded me a hell of a view. You have so many good one-liners. <laughs> um, this is the kind of podcast, Leanne, that people go listen to a couple times, and they'll stop and they'll write down the very words you said. You have a really wonderful gift of creating imagery, visual imagery, as you talk about really hard things. I am just struck by the things you want to accomplish for your kids. I, I wrote them down, fiercely loved, you are enough, and you belong here. Mm-hmm. The thing I'm versus a list that might include getting into BYU, getting a certain ACT, making a team, having a certain scoring average. And I'm thinking the list you just gave our listeners are things that as a parent, I think it's easier to do. And it's more sustaining. And it'll get them, you said this other thing, that the greatest gift you can give to your children is emotional resiliency. Right. Because the storm will come. As a parent of six kids, you know, and all of our kids are now past high school age, I love that. Um, You know, I hope younger parents are listening to this that can still do what you just said. Because in our hyper-perfective culture and our it's just such a difficult culture um, in some ways. And it's so sometimes it's an, it's a zero, it's a, it's a, you know, getting into BYU means someone else doesn't get, it's a, it's a, you win at someone else's expense. Um, But what you just said, everybody can do. There's no, you know, everybody can get to that space. It doesn't cost someone else getting there, you getting there. Right. And God doesn't care about getting into BYU. I'm sorry. He doesn't. (laughs) I love BYU and I bleed blue, (laughs) but, um, those are the things that God does care about. Those are the things that will matter. And what a great, those are really powerful parenting things. And I I've shared this a couple of times in the podcast. I had a YSA come in who was um, in the army in Afghanistan. And in the course of that had bombed the Taliban and knew that sort of innocent children and women had died. And he asked for a blessing to reconcile that. I thought, as I laid my hands on his head, I thought there's no way, there's no words that could come out of my mouth that could reconcile. And then these words came out of my mouth that may apply to your situation. And it was these words, no one's eternal possibilities have changed because of what happened in Afghanistan. And maybe that's what he'd say to you and your family, even though what happened, what's happened in mortality has dramatically changed, as mm-hmm. you know better than anybody. But perhaps in this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ and this, that, that all your hopes, at least for eternity, are still in place and no one's eternal possibilities have changed. I don't know how you feel about that. Any thoughts on that? I definitely believe that. Um, I think that mortality is hard and that's the way it was supposed to be. And when we get to the, to the other side, um, I think we will find a lot of understanding and peace and answers. And you're right. We may have caused a little bit more, Uh, maybe a little more challenging learning for ourselves on the other side. But again, it comes back to the fact that 
we believe in an unconditionally loving God. And I don't believe that anything done here in mortality, um, save a few horrid sins. Um, and even then I do believe God is so merciful. And as I look at my, my own children, it only makes sense to me that God is championing, championing, and <laughs> championing. You're doing great, Leanne. Uh, us more than anyone else. And he wants us to succeed and he'll take Spence and Caden in his arms. And he might say, mm, not cool guys, but that that's the way that they, that they left the earth. But, um, he will love them and love on them and hug them and, um, and they'll get their stuff figured out just like all of us. We all, we're all just doing the best we can. And I wish people understood that more that we're all in it together. And that's what I keep trying to like get out there for people that are hurting is you're not alone. Like your neighbor's probably hurting just as much as you are. And he looks completely fine and normal. What would you love to change about the culture of the church? I wish people didn't wear masks. (laughs) Um, One of the silver linings of my situation is at the age of 38, I know exactly who I am and I know exactly what's important. And I didn't used to know that. I didn't know the depths of my capacity to survive, to endure. Um, There's a little bit of liberation on the other side of both my nightmares coming true. Um, and that has afforded me a life that I live pretty authentically. And I wish that people could catch the vision of that a little bit more, that there truly is more happiness in flawed authenticity to just be who you are. And like newsflash, we're all a little broken and that's okay. Like God sent us into mortality knowing that we were going to be flawed now. Like that's what we're doing here. I just don't, it's hard for me to understand how some people hold so tightly onto what they think things should look like. Like just be you. It's so much better to just be you. It's more like, this sounds very odd, but at this point in my life, after everything I've been through, I would say that I am at more peace with myself than I have ever been. Not that I have a ton of peace in my life. There's still a lot of grief and children in grief, but at peace with myself, I'm that more than I ever have been. And I do believe that that comes from living authentically. Um, And so I wish people would embrace authenticity a bit more. And to me, that's closely correlated with what you want your own children to feel loved. You are enough and you belong. It's so much easier to belong based on who we are versus fitting into something we're not. So I love the link there. It's very, very helpful. You know, I, I think about your kids and I, I'm not your bishop or your priest, or leader, or family member, but I have to think some of the paydays down the road will, will, when you see your kids because of the things you're teaching them shine. And I have to think some of the paydays are hearing your future in-laws talk to you about why they're marrying one of your kids. 
because that kid of yours is different than anybody they've ever met because of the things you're teaching them and the things that they've learned. And maybe one of your paydays seeing your grandchildren, um, knowing that your kids and their spouses have a better foundation than I had or that some kids have because of the things they're learning through this experience. And so I would just think if Heavenly Father were here, he'd want to give you hope that there's some great paydays down the road. And that even though you recognize your children are processing really difficult things and you worry about how this is going to play out, in some ways I think some of your greatest paydays will see how they've taken this experience and have been able then to be better partners and better parents and better human beings. And I think as you go to sleep quietly at night after some of those experiences, you'll have moments of just gratitude. That's the hope. That's the hope. I do have a couple that have already caught the vision of my 11 year old has said, um, you know, I've tried to teach them if you can get to the other side of this and you cannot hate the world and hate yourself and hate God, you will have, people will listen to what you say. If you stand up in a room to talk about grief, to talk about acceptance, to talk about all those things, people will listen to you. And so you have a power if you choose to use it, um, because this has been your life. And I, I want my kids to, I remind them constantly, people have it worse than us. Please know that this feels awful, but there are a lot of people who are doing more awful things. I don't want them to see themselves. Like I said, as tragic. Um, I want them to see, I want our story to be a strong victory story and not just this sad tragedy that they define their life from. Um, and that's you taking shame out of all of this. Right. And so I love, because everything you just said about what your kids, you want your kids to do, there's no shame in that. I agree. I I don't, my kids and people, all people probably feel this way about their children, but I feel like my kids are spiritual giants. I feel like they, they've been asked to walk an even harder road than I have. And if I can teach them that this is something that can build and shape their characters in a way that nothing else could. Um, hopefully they're those kids that you speak of and that's the hope. It's the hope. But you know what I've learned? Like I said, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And as I've watched girls come in and out of the support groups that I've been in, the key to thriving is acceptance is to aligning our will with God's as much as we hate it. Because as long as we stay in the why, I don't want this, I don't like this, it isn't fair, we are putting ourselves at odds with God. And that's part of the process. And so we all go in a time when we're odds with God. Um, but when we can accept, like I said, I have given up on having that building built that I want my kids' lives to be this, that, or whatever. I have a tentative hope, but if something else turns out, then that's what turns out. And I guess since I've now walked through death two times, um, I feel like nothing is the end of the world. If I have children that take this really badly and go off the path for a long time and do very destructive things, I can only do what I can do and they have to find their way through it. And, um, if they don't hear, they will on the other side, but I've learned to accept that 
I'm happier if I just tell God, I'll do my part as much as I could. I can't save anyone. Right. I can't save my children as much as I would dragon fight for them for eternity. I cannot save them. Um, I can only be the best mom I can be to them today. That's all I can do. That's great. We're kind of at the end of the podcast. This has been very, very helpful. Um, I'd love to have Leanne say some final thoughts. Reed, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share? It's an honor to be here. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Reed, for facilitating this and your thoughts during the podcast. And thanks for all those good high school people you're teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Leanne, any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, I guess I would just encourage, when I say those that are hurting, there's people hurting on both sides of this. Um, but like I said, I encourage people to, if you feel it, say it. Um, just say it to people, even if it's awkward, just, just say it. Um, as far as if you love someone, if you care about someone, if you admire someone, if you like their eyes or the belt they're wearing, like just find something to connect with that other human soul for just a moment, because I feel so strongly, even as I stand among strangers at the store, I just want to be like, hold their hand and be like, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but I just feel such a kinship with mankind that to watch my husband and my son go through so much pain, um, it just has driven home for me that we are all in this together. We are all struggling to figure out our own personal journey. And God put us in this type of situation with families and friends and networks of groups and communities for a reason, because we need each other. No soul is going to exist, never knowing another soul and get back to God and achieve salvation. Like it just wasn't built that way. And I just would encourage people on those that are hurting, those that aren't hurting to just remember that we truly are brothers and sisters and we are all in this together. So let people help you let people draw their swords in your defense, like, and draw your swords for others. Just, I don't know. I guess I just feel that so passionately. Like we are all battling the fight. And if you speak up, there will be more people than you ever thought who would line up next to you on that battlefield and say, I stand with you and I'll fight with you. And I have been the recipient of that, that when the darkness was too much and I felt like I couldn't battle, others stood up and battled for me. Um, and I've also battled for others that I love. So that's just what I would encourage. Um, we're all in this together. Speak up on both sides of this. Speak your love and speak your pain. Thank you, Leanne Tressler, for joining us on behalf of all of our listeners that help make this podcast possible and share it with others. We're so grateful for you sharing your story to help all of us. And we all give you a virtual hug from wherever we're listening. Some will be jogging, some will be driving, some will be on planes. And I just know from our listeners that, and the people that you've already touched through your Facebook posts and writing that thank you for who you are and your ability to share your story and the hope you're bringing to so many. 
And thanks our listeners for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler.